Hey everyone, Peter Kapsner here from Deeper Magic. Thanks so much for listening. Anna and I had a chance to welcome Rebecca Ree into Deeper Magic this last week, and we did an in-depth dive on the story of Hagar and Sarai, Abram and Ishmael, and Rebecca took us in and out of that story in some ways that we've never heard. So grab your Bibles for sure in listening to this episode, maybe some paper, unless you're driving, of course, then you might just need to listen back to it a few different times. So much information as well. We decided to split it up into two parts, and she had some incredible applications for life as parents, people of faith, thinking about what it means to live out life even when some of our promises don't come true. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. You're listening to Deeper Magic. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Deeper Magic Podcast. I'm Peter Kapsner, and I'm here at a pretty early morning hour this time of recording uh, with my daughter, Anna. Say hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. So you got out of bed, what, 12 minutes ago, and here you are in studio? Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing is you're like, this is a very early hour. At this point on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would have been in class for 40 minutes already. And most days of the week, I would have been at work for almost two hours. It was pretty impressive, I have to say, because I had knocked on the door to your room thinking that there's no chance you're going to mm-hmm. be joining me and our guest, Rebecca Reed, today for this podcast. And yet here you sit with some sort of tangerine, orange, mandarin, clementine thing, a yep. cup of coffee and your phone and you're ready to go. Oh, yeah. And I started a load of laundry before we started recording. So <laughs> that was a good 12 minutes. Well, another person. Who's up, yeah, see, there's the other person who's up early this morning too, and, and and clearly impressed with your ability to get out of bed. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. So it, it's uh, you're on the East Coast, and so it's not quite as early. But you had a great comment as we were getting the mic set up and everything about what it means to to feel like you've had a successful morning so far. What you had some criteria for getting out of bed. For getting out of bed, it's the same thing that you that they need to check off on a form when you're discharged from the hospital, which is you have to have three things, awake, oriented, and ambulatory. And if you're all three of those things, then they let you out of the hospital. And if you're not, then it's a problem. And that pretty much uh, applies to life in general. You, you kind of need to open your eyes and be those three things, especially if you have a child. Oh, yeah, so, that makes um, sense. Well, and you, you, had, you said you breakfasted this morning. What was, uh, what was on the menu? Oh, just curious. I made him a very elaborate. My son has autism, so he's got a routine, a ritual of what he eats. And I've got him his food on a tray with little compartments and each, you know, food goes in this place on the on the tray. And so, yeah, I ate curious where he ate like waffles and, you know, yogurt and all and apples and all kinds of good things. So. That's actually awesome. Yeah, your stories with your son, and I know we'll get into more as we go along, I'm sure, but there's some of my favorite ones, Rebecca, just how how you have managed to to process. And you're sort of this dual role of Hebrew expert and mother, and Mm. and both of them, I'm sure, take quite a bit of time, right? Um, They take everything I have. (laughs) Yep, that sounds about right. Not just time, but everything that I have within me, yes. Uh, so your son has, you've been on the journey with him for a number of years now, and I'm sure that yep. it has changed your life and your perceptions and your spiritual formation and all of it in a lot of both anticipated and unanticipated ways. Yep. Well, he's turned 11. Mm-hmm. And I, frankly, my husband and I cannot believe that we've kept him alive this long, mm-hmm. <laughs> let alone, <laughs> but he's thri- He's thriving. Good. And although he's mostly nonverbal, he has very serious verbal deficits. His language is growing. He's starting to figure out that uh, if he uses words, which are very hard for him to form his mouth with, you know, um, form with his mouth, I mean, uh, but if he uses them, he gets what he wants faster. 
So kids with autism, they're not there to please you often. They're there to uh, please themselves. And once they figure that something, figure out that something works to their benefit, then you got them. Oh, yeah, so, definitely. And, you know, a lot of us are that way. Neurotypicals, we're that way, too. It's like, oh, this actually, God spends a lot. God spends a lot of time trying to explain to us the certain things he's telling us to do are in really in our self-interest. Mm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Is there is there really anything that is actually like neurotypical? What would be the criteria? I feel like there's just different versions of divergence for all of us. Some of mm -hmm. them, you know, really different than others. But but it, it seems like we're always measuring up against what's common or normal. But then I can never really identify what's common and normal. Well, I think language would be a, a big one. Whether mm -hmm. they that's uh, fair, a super fair. Speak, yeah, and then um, being able to um, deal with. Uh, variation from routine, being able to de depart from a routine and cope with that and be able to go with a different plan B um, and, and be okay with that. Um, yeah, that would be another one, a very big telltale sign. And also I'd say another one, a third one would be um, autistic kids. Again, autism comes in such a different pra uh, package as for each kid. But a lot of autistic kids turn inward, and so often um, they're engaging with in behaviors like playing with toys or doing certain things that are um, that are reinforced um, in the sense that they want to do it. They're they're turning inward to do it and not paying attention so much to the outside world and outside people. Hmm. So that's another thing. Yeah. That's um, yeah. Well, so, so. And, and I know just, I know how full on it is for you, just as we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the years, first on Faith Radio, when uh, I was part of some interviews with you and got to know sort of just your background a little bit in terms of your expertise within the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. And so maybe tell us just a little bit about how your day tends to work when you're weaving back and forth between these two worlds and even just a bit of your background in the Hebrew scriptures. Yep. Well, I really, um, it's difficult for me to say that I'm a Hebrew expert. I can work with the Hebrew language, biblical Hebrew language, and I can look things up and I'm, I'm good enough to do that kind of stuff. And I have an amazing software program that has more uh, capability than I ever, will tell me more and more <laughs> about the scriptures than I would ever be able to absorb um, when I, you know, click on this or click on that. Um, but I uh, did my my B, my BA at Yale University, and I did uh, humanities, which meant um, I was reading world literature and doing art history, and um, that really got me going. About I wanted to read good story, and um, I wanted I was reading stories from all over the world. And I wanted to read story in the Bible um, in its original language, and all, all the stories are in the um, what we would call the Old Testament, what Jews would call the Hebrew Bible, um, as opposed to the Greek Bible. Um, so that's when I decided to go to Yale Divinity School and get my uh, two-year uh, MAR there, my Master of Arts in Religion, and that's where I took Hebrew, and um, and that's where I took, uh, I had an interdisciplinary major, so that's where I also took a lot of literature, like British poetry and Dante, and so it's always been um, a very, very um, eclectic yet um, brilliantly woven together opportunity that I've had educationally. Um, and then finally, when I decided to do my doctorate, it was uh, it was going. To, I did it on the uh, Joseph story in Genesis, um, and I focused on his direct speech, um, how he gets things done merely by pronouncing them, because I felt like Joseph was a, a good foil for God, saying, "Let there be light," and stuff happens. And Joseph is the last 
person we hear at the end of Genesis before you enter into the rest of the Bible. So I was very interested in how his, um, his direct speech mirrored God and accomplishes things like God accomplishes things with his words. <laughs> Rebecca, as you're going through your story, you just need to know that I feel like I'm watching the Wicked Witch of the West right now. She just, Excuse Anna me. literally melted into a puddle on the floor. You have done and said everything that she would ever want to do or say, right, Anna? Oh, I want to say, first of all, the whole time that you were just talking there, I was like, I think I just fell in love with you a little bit. Um, but also, I'm curious, have you heard of Mary Jo Bang's um, Inferno translation? Because I have it sitting on my shelf right now and I've flipped through it a little bit. It's so fascinating, but she retranslated um, Inferno into modern vernacular to make it accessible to modern readers and like kind of took all of the ideas and themes of the time that would have been accessible to the readers um, rather than much more of the like upper class literature of the time and then like translated it into our modern vernacular so that we can understand it today. Um, and it's brilliant. It's beautiful. I love it. I think that the, the you know the scriptures like the New Living Translation. There's mm-hmm. definitely a place for um, trying to you know hear a text uh, as the original audience would like to hear it. But in my heart, I'm like I'm an oldie. I'm oh, a yeah. luddite. I'm kind of like I will always gravitate towards like the ancient uh, language and um, you know the the beautiful way the King James Bible handles the Psalms or something like that. So like I'm a I'm a classics person. Um, um, but, um, there's definitely a place. One of the wonderful things that my software does is it'll bring up so many different translations of the English of a passage along with the Hebrew that I can see actually, you know, the King James right next to the new living translation. And that's very useful actually, because hmm. every time you make a translation, you're making an interpretation, you're making yeah. an interpretive decision. So how you're doing that, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to see that standing next to each other. Maybe one more comment on that, Rebecca, and then we'll have Anna just remind us of why we're in this story of Hagar, mm-hmm. what was interesting to you and, and what you were starting to see initially, since that's why we brought Rebecca in to help us tease out some more from this. But maybe just say one more comment about that, Rebecca. I think people who read the scriptures or at least hear them taught don't often understand that as they're reading in English or hearing them taught that they really are somebody's interpretation. And oftentimes it's meant to be a faithful interpretation, but I know my students get really confused at times about why they are hearing two different versions of an interpretation from the same story. Yeah, and I went round and round with um, somebody the other day about where I was like, well, this is what it says in the Hebrew. And he was like, but that's not what it says in my Bible. And I was like, I understand that. But that's because your Bible is in English and it's been filtered through centuries of translations and theologies and ideas and interpretations and whatever. But this is what it actually says in the Hebrew. And he was like, but that's not what it says in my Bible. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Help us out here, Rebecca. As the not quite Save Hebrew me. expert. We won't call you Hebrew e- expert anymore. Maybe the pseudo not quite alleged Hebrew expert. Are you, are you more comfortable with those terms? <laughs> I just like somebody who loves Hebrew and is always work, trying to work with my The very first thing that I do when I decide I'm going to work with a story, and narrative is what I like to work with best, as opposed to, let's say, poetry or legal material or something like that, um, is I go and I pull down my Hebrew Bible, which is quite beat up, and I photocopy the story in the original, and then I pick um, a translation that I like in the English, and I photocopy that, and I I read 
excited them together. And that's where I start always on the level of language because the people make all sorts of like um, towers of Babel arguments um, that go up and up and up and they don't realize um, that's not what it says in the original. You, you can't, you know, that's not the right word or you can't say that's the wrong preposition before that word, which changes its meaning. You know what I mean? Like I, my interpretations, however, I don't want to say lofty, but however involved they get, always start on the level of language. Um, And then that's where I think our theology needs to start always on the the level of language, which is why I got so enchanted with direct speech because I'm like, what are these people actually saying? You know, what words are coming out of their mouth? Um, And so that's, yeah, always start on the level of language. That's what I say. Mm, Yeah. And with the language thing really quickly as well, I just had a funny moment going back through translations and everything the other night where a friend of mine, um, we were studying Psalm 23. And as we were going through it and everything, I believe it's the end of verse five where it says, um, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. And as we were reading it, we got to the end, my cup runs over. And we just had this really funny moment where we looked at each other and we were like, so why does this say that the word for cup can also be translated as little owl? And what is that about? Because that means that you could read Psalm 23 as, and the little owl runs over. And we were like, what is going on? And so we dove into it a little bit more. And it ended up being that the word for cup can mean bag or pouch or vessel or purse or whatever. And so the Hebrew word for pelican comes from that word for cup because of the like pouch thing in its neck. But it was so funny because we were sitting there reading it and we were like, you anoint my head with oil and the little owl runs over. <laughs> That'd be a very what? different translation. <laughs> if you like, if you like, I can say a word about that. That'd be oh, great. Of course. Do. This is okay. So this is my, my theory. Okay. I could be devastatingly wrong here. Wonderful. This is my theory. So if um, you're a God who's trying to introduce your, yourself to a world where deities are envisioned as, um, more tangible, concrete, um, gods uh, tied to certain places, gods um, who are represented by physical objects. Uh, And so you want to differentiate yourself by saying, I'm God over all of these gods. I'm neither tangible. I'm going to blow your mind. You can't put me in a box. I'm not tied to a place. Um, I'm more than you could. I'm a bigger mystery than you could ever fathom. You would use a language to talk about yourself in a, in a, uh, you would use a language that communicates that inherent ambiguousness and inherent mystery. So Hebrew has a relatively smaller vocabulary and it has words that do double, triple, uh, definitions. A lot of the words mean different things depending on what, how they are, uh, so depending how the verb is conjugated, it can mean something different or how a noun is conjugate, uh, declined. So um, I always picture it as someone taking a shovel and starting to dig into the earth. And you look at that and you say, well, that's a real, look at the rough edges. Like, this is a very, this is not a precise like hole, but I would say, but look how profound it is. For example, the word that uh, you use for your eye is the same word that you use for a spring in the desert because water comes out. Mm, that's so beautiful. You see that, 
Yeah. And so God's saying, don't pin me down. There's several names for me. There's several ways that I talk. And I mean, several, I always call it super abundant. There's several things that I mean when I say something. Mm. Whereas if once you get to Greek and the New Testament, Greek is a huge language in the sense of it's the language of nomenclature. You know, we're putting all these prepositions before words like, you know, epi or hyper or whatever, and we create whole new words. And the purpose of that is if a God is trying to introduce himself to the world in a precise, now we're looking at um, precision. So we're looking at, I was born in a certain place in history, a certain time and a certain form. And I want the language to reflect that as well. I want the language to be as precise as I am. So those two languages work very well in concert, concert with each other in terms of the two testaments um, being next to each other. But I would characterize the, the languages like that. Mm. I think and that actually is a perfect setup for where we're headed in the Hagar story here, Rebecca, because there you have a, a number of themes that are woven between Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. And Anna, I know we you really wanted to do this story, especially because of the story of Hagar is so compelling as someone who was cast out of the home and yet God what ministered to her in some profound ways. Uh, there's some interchanges that is the first time that somebody really hears or, or knows God's name. There's just a lot in the story. And then Rebecca, I have to admit as an alleged Bible expert, which I am not, <laughs> but, but as an alleged Bible expert, <laughs> I literally did not even know until you brought it up that the story of Hagar and Sarai and Abram sort of continues in some way into Genesis 21 and finds its culmination there. So Anna and I, you just blew our minds. The idea that five <laughs> chapters later, this story comes to an end and there's a bunch of themes between them. So I would love to start getting into these stories with you. Yes, absolutely. And I tried to choose um, four things to talk about that um, you might otherwise miss if you don't have the biblical Hebrew. And we those themes, I mean, it was just... They're related to even some of what you said with, with sight and taking in hand and, and all of these things. So do you want to just start us off by reminding us of the story and, and reading a version of Genesis 16 that, uh, sure. that you're sort of an abridged version of this? Yep. So um, I'll just start by saying, so Hagar, um, Sarah's, uh, her name is Sarai, it's this person, Sarah, so Sarai's Egyptian handmaid. Um, she's the one that gives birth to Abram's first child. Um, and it's really Avram, but I think that's weird on pe- a lot of people's ears. So I'm just going to say Abram. Um, she's also distinguished by the fact that her story is told in two parts, which we said is Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. And what I w- hope to show during our time together is that the storyteller structures that biography quite intentionally because he wants to underscore certain changes that Hagar undergoes as a person that God has his eye on. Um, and specifically, there's the, the four things I want to talk about that carry over from 16 to 21 um, that illuminate this woman, and I hope illuminate us um, as we enter into her experience. Yeah, because you so have a series of very compelling questions, Rebecca. I mean, this, this is an interesting story in and of itself, but I think what it speaks to related to the human condition, our experience, some of the invitations, all of those things. Again, this is one of those stories that I never got in a board book or Veggie Tales or any kind of you know, children's <laughs> Bible that I had. So there's a lot in this for just about all walks of life based on the notes that you've already given us. Yep. Well, it is a packed story. And especially, it's just I love the fact that, you know, people make assumptions. I think, well, yeah, this is just the way it is. No, it, it's a structure. There's meaning. Even 
not just in the in the meat of the story, but in the form and, and structure of the story. So I'm just amazed the way that the all this happening stuff happens between the 16 and 21, but then you you actually find out there's a lot of intention behind breaking up the story that way. All right. So why don't I just start by um, reading an abridged version of 16. Right. So I'll start from uh, verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to his, the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, uh, sorry, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Then she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. So I'm going to stop right there. Boy, so, there's, yeah, we have a thousand questions, but I know you've yeah, got some notes uh, to go through. Why don't you kind of take us through some of the highlights of this story insofar as what you see in this uh, yep. pretty amazing tale, actually. Yep. So um, what do we learn from Hagar? Ba- the basics of what we learn about Hagar from this chapter, which is uh, she has an Egyptian, she's an Egyptian maidservant who's been living with Abram and Sarai for at least 10 years. Um, and the Hebrew term for that is a shifra. Um, and it means basically a woman that usually serves the mistress of the house who's remained untouched, like she's not um, a concubine or anything like that yet, or she, that's just not what she is. Um, so we don't know exactly how they became they came to be in possession of her. Um, we the, the storyteller isn't interested in that question. Um, Sarah co-opts her body to have the children she believes God has withheld from her. And at this point, um, Abrams does ni- neither questions or objects to this. And the other thing we know about Hagar is that she holds her mistress in contempt when she gets pregnant, which is such a human response um, that gets her into so much trouble that she runs away. Uh, and by human response, I mean her contempt may be in direct proportion to the degree she feels she's been demeaned and controlled in the past. At least that's how I'm seeing it. Yeah, and just a quick follow-up. Such a flip. 
Yeah. I mean, she seems like this is going to be the way she's going to build her house or build her kingdom. And yet then she has all this contempt. Do you have any background? We can look into this for the next episode, uh, Anna and I too, if not, but any background that this was a common kind of experience where you had the maidservants or you had the concubines in the household and that maybe the the main wife would act in this way. I, I'm just so curious of like what these households were like. I know I get a ton of questions from students and people in church. Like what is happening in these old Testament mm-hmm. stories where they have, you know, a man with multiple wives and concubines. Do you have any background on this? Um, well, I would say that a lot when I was back in grad school, like a, a jillion years ago, <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, there was uh, some talk of like, financial realities of why a man would might have to take several women as his wife because the economic system kind of demanded it because um, a woman could not hold property on her own. Or, so there were certain economic realities that made uh, a man with multiple wives um, a, a sort of a financial necessity in society. Um, the other thing I would say about that is there's more than one word for uh, what we would say maidservant. Um, the one of the words that comes on later in 21, she's called an ama, and that means that she has been um, taken as a concubine. So there's been some kind of marriage, either to as a secondary wife to the to the head of the house or um, to another servant. So the fact that we have different um, vocabulary words would tell me that there are different functions. That makes yeah. sense. Well, and one of the things that we talked about. Um, with our first part of the Hagar episode. So we've been saying Hagar, you're saying Hagar. Yeah, that's her. That's how you say it. Hagar. Yeah. Hagar. Okay. Um, well, when we released an episode last week talking about the first part of this story, one of the things that we were talking about was the levels and layers of loneliness that seemed to have been, or like of isolation that at this point would have been put on her in terms of the fact that she's Egyptian and she's not in her, native land and then she's not even in the land that she was sold into and then they're kind of wandering through the wilderness and then she's set apart from the other servants and slaves in the sense that she has chosen to bear Abram's children and it's just kind of this whole thing where it's like there are so many she's alone and now she's more alone and now she's more alone and now she's more alone and then she's in this position where she is now pregnant and with child Mm. and is like I have nowhere to go. I have no one to turn to. Yeah. Now, it's, it's funny to me because that, that they bother, the storyteller bothers to tell us that they were, they, they owned her for 10 years before they slipped on her and said, well, now you're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just think about like the awkwardness of that and the, but we're, there's so much, but it's, it's what is the storyteller interested in? And he's really not interested at this point in telling us exactly what Hagar feels until she becomes pregnant. Mm. And and then this rivalry happens with uh, with uh, Sarai. Um, basically, in, in this in this chapter, Hagar is defined in large part by what she lacks. So she lacks autonomy over her own body. She lacks control over her circumstances. And it's funny because you were talking about loneliness. Um, neither Sarai nor Abram talk actually speaks to her at any point in the story. Um, even though they're both really intimately connected to her, um, the only speaking to Hagar is done by God's angel alone. Um, 
And I mean, so that's just that awkwardness of sitting in the room where people are talking about you. I mean, I don't know that she was sitting in the room, right? With with the two of them as they were going back and forth about what to do in this situation. But it does really, that does speak that she really did not have any agency to speak of in this moment. I mean, I'm assuming when Sarai came to her that it was just was an automatic. Yeah. She did not have any agency to do anything other than sleep with Abr- uh, Abram and then become, oh, yeah. to bear this child. And why so did you have any sense of why then uh, Sarah, I'm just going to say Sarah, cause I can't, I'm, I'm starting to learn Hagar. Is it, it's, it, do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. And you've been yeah. saying Sarai for years. So I don't know. why. I don't so know. I just, it's too early in the morning. I'm barely ambulatory. So, so, so <laughs> Sarai, uh, why does she become contemptuous? So if, I mean, I don't think the text gives us any real hints, but is there anything again about why she, the switch flipped for her? I think, um, again, when we move into 21, that will speak a little bit more to the situation, okay. but, um, it's interesting because the word that she uses when she says, um, may the wrong done to me be on your head, kind of Abram, that word is Hamas. And it's the same word that's used with the terrorist group that we're, we hear so much about in the uh, news right now. It means violence. Oh, wow. And it's the word that's used in Genesis 6 when God looks over the whole earth and it's so um, unbelievably evil and violent that he sends the flood. That's Hamas. Wow. Um, so she's, she's feeling this um, keenly. So we know just one thing I learned about Sarai, she doesn't beat her on the bush and often the first words that you hear out of a character's mouth really are emblematic of who they're going to be in the rest of the story. Mm. So it's always that's, and that's not my idea. That's by a guy named Robert Alter who wrote a a beautiful book on called, um, the the biblical narrative. Uh, yeah, the art of biblical narrative, Robert Alter, really good to pick up. Mm. Um, anyway, so, um, I would think this is a good time to move over to chapter 21 so that we can start discussing just discussing discussing um uh some of the things that get pulled from 16 and move into 21 um so genesis 21 verses 1 1 through 21 and it's an abridged version the lord visited sarah as he had said and the lord did to sarah as he had promised And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born him, Isaac. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me because Isaac's name is Yitzhak, which means laugh. Mm -hmm. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now here's where the trouble comes. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of what, because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is off your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, where she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He took in the well, he lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And that's where we're going to stop. Wow. So, I mean, right off the bat, the idea of God opening her eyes and her seeing a well before her, doesn't that mirror the language of chapter 16 where she find where she encounters God at a spring or a well? You're all my, you're, you, know, you are stealing all my thunder when <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we know, we know, we're going to talk exactly about that, like meta- metaphorical eye-opening and actual physical eye-opening. Mm. But yeah, that's definitely one of the things that gets uh, transferred over. But the first part of the body, actually, is that I want to talk about is not so much the eye, but the hand. The image of the hand, which symbolizes power or authority. And it's funny because lots of times in this story, and I, I'm... Um, I often read from the North uh, New American Standard, and I think this was the English uh, English ESV that I was reading from. Uh, will be very very literal, but sometimes the word for when you see the word power or authority, that's actually hand. Like uh, Hagar is in your power; it's actually Hagar is in your hand. Or um, submit to her authority, submit to her hand. So I don't know why the interpreters don't actually just say the body parts because. We would all get it, but um, it's important. In the Hebrew, it, it, the bells are ringing. That's all I want to say. It's the bell of repetition of the word hand is ringing and ringing and ringing. Oh. And when the angel rescues Hagar in the desert here, he says, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy, boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. It literally, it means Seize his hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Now, I wanted to know, you know, the angel could have said it without that, seize his hand. Why the detail about the hand? She would have gotten the message without that particular clause in the pronouncement. Um, And if we return to Genesis 16, we hear that very word uttered by Abram when Sarai accuses him of wrongdoing with Hagar. She says, I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. And literally, literally, I was despised in her eyes. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. And literally, behold, your maid is in your, in your hand. Do what is good in your eyes. Okay, so before Ishmael is born, 
Hagar is put into Sarai's hand, and it's a symbol of her powerlessness against her mistress's abuse. Um, Abraham just submits, just lets her go, gives her into his, his really irate wife's hand. After Ishmael is born, she's the one taking control. God puts the boy into her hand, and she is given the power not only to save him, but herself. She never returns to servitude um, at, after this point. So thus, whoever uses their hand is the one that's exercising power, which in the, between the two chapters shifts from Sagar, Sarai over to Hagar regarding herself and her son. Wow. Yeah. And that's so I love the shift in power there and the shift in like, OK, now this is yours and I am handing this over to you and see there was a plan all along because um, I can't remember if dad and I got this far in our episode that we released last week or if we'll be covering this next week. But part of the implication of God telling Hagar to go back that that we've been talking about in our study about it has been that this woman is alone in the wilderness and she's pregnant. And that is not something small. That is something incredibly dangerous. And the idea of her trying to give birth alone in the wilderness is like, I don't know, the odds of survival there are not fantastic. Um, Which, and I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons why God would send her back to Abram and, and Sarai. But part of what we were talking about is that is almost for the safety of Hagar and for her son, which feels counterintuitive to send her back to Abram and and Sarai for safety. But that, that is a part of what's going on there. And so I love that this time now in the wilderness, she's in this situation again, where she thinks that they're both going to die and God comes to her in the same way and is like, no, you are no longer in your mistress's hand. You are in your own power. Um, Yes. And yeah. I don't know, that shift is so beautiful in so many ways. Well, and there's, we're going to find that there's a certain lovely poetic symmetry that happens between the two chapters um, between, well, as we go along. But um, let's talk about the I that you brought up um, with yeah. the, before. So that's kind of the theme of re- perception or revelation that when we talk about the I. So in Genesis 16... God opens Hagar's eyes in a metaphorical sense by telling her Ishmael has a future. And for that reason, she has to go back um, only with a fresh perspective. And I, you know, you can't help but ask the question. We could tease that out later. Is, you know, is that enough for us? Can you mm. go right back into the, the terrible situation that you came out of holding, you know, clasping um, a different, a promise, a different perspective, you know, what gets us through. And we'll talk about that a little later um, with some of the other things, but good question to ask ourselves. Yeah. And really quickly as well with the um, opening of the eyes, one of the things that we've talked about so much as we've been doing Hebrew studies with Noah and Holly and, and other friends of ours is one of the most important things when you're looking at different phrases or different ideas is to go back to the first time that this phrase or idea was used because that'll tell you a lot about the implications of it. And so I was curious when you were talking about and God opened her eyes, um, because I don't know about you guys, but for me that rings bells of Genesis um, and the garden and the idea of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and how eyes are opened there. And so I just did a little bit of like, pulling to see if this is the same phrase that's used there as it is here. 
and it it is and it's genesis 3 5 for god knows of the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil um but i think it's so interesting that it's the same word used here because it's this idea of being able to see at to to see what is going on in the fullness of all of it um but in this moment it is god opening hagar's eyes not hagar opening her own eyes which i just think is so important to pay attention to in this passage that phrase yeah Mm. that phrase pops up all over hebrew narrative the opening of the eyes and Mm -hmm. i would say you could pretty much take it as a um, a generic term for it's got specific you know, meanings to it too, but as a generic term for that pause in perception, that pause which equals a realization of something that's happening that you didn't realize a moment before. So it's it's definitely a moment of of pause, kind of like when you read the Psalms and it says the law, and you, you yeah. pause and you kind of allow what you've just been saying or singing to absorb. I would say it's kind of like that. It's a pause in a person's life when it says their eyes get opened. Um, then some, then something's going to happen. Whenever you see that phrase, then it's never just going to go back to whatever was happening with, with nothing, you know, no implications. Something else is going to happen. Um, mm. So uh, she cannot yet see Ishmael in Genesis 16, but she's at least blessed to hear this really long four-part prophecy about, about him. And it definitely mirrors the prophecy that Abraham, when he gets, when he goes under the starry sky and God says all these, some of the phrases are exactly the same. She gets to hear all of that. In, um, and then she names God, you are the God who sees me. So it's all about perception. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about that in a minute in terms of what does it do to the human soul to feel like these things, to be to feel like you've been seen. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it has something to do with going back to a hard thing um, if you feel like you've been seen. Um, but in Genesis 21, God opens Hagar's eyes literally, and she sees the well that saves her and Ishmael's life. And um, so that in 21, it's not so much about hearing because all the angel does is briefly summarize what he said in 16. It's about God revealing something that completely changes Hagar's narrative and wins her freedom and her sons. Um, and the theme of blessed eyes is carried over as Ishmael grows up because there's this two-part um, echo of the bow, like a bow and arrow. Hagar leaves Ishmael a bow shot away when she thinks he's going to die because she can't stand to watch him die. But then later, a couple of verses down, it says he becomes an expert with the bow, which requires a keen eyesight. So there's another reversal going on there. It's like, first, I don't want to see your bow shot away. Then he's going to see and he's going to use that bow. Um, not, you know, I haven't been able to tease out the full meaning, but there's definitely a bell ringing there for a reason. You can hear it. I mean, the storyteller put that in there for a reason. And right here is where we decided to cut off this episode. So thanks for listening to the first part of this. Catch us next week for part two with Rebecca Ree on Deeper Magic.
Weird Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. 